Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's uh, Roxanne Durhaj. How are you again today? Um, so glad everybody's uh, tuning in. Today I have uh, David Thomas, and you said you're based in Halifax, North London. Is that what it is? Tell me exactly. No, Halifax, the, the north of England. North of England. Here in I London. I missed. I mistook what you said. Um, so he is an expert. Now you talk a little bit about. Um, your background, is it that you, you're a memory expert? Is that what I read? Something to do with memory? So, so tell me about that. I was reading a little bit about your background and we'll talk a little bit about what we're going to chat about today. Well, my background is that I had a, a troubled childhood, never went to college, got kicked out of school, working in a factory for like $2 an hour. And then I joined the fire service. And when I was in the fire service, I had trouble passing my exams. And one day I saw a guy memorize a pack of playing cards on TV, bought his book, taught myself how to do it. Eight months later, I went to the World Memory Championships, came forth, found I just had a gift. And then everybody's like, how do you do this memory stuff? And I said, it's just that easy. It's a few techniques and they got to teach me the techniques. And so back in February 1997, I gave my first talk. And for the following, and then very soon after that, I left the fire service, broke a Guinness record. And then... And then that was for 15 years. And then in 2011, somebody came out of an audience and just said, would I show them how to improve their presentation skills? I said, I don't do that. That's not my bag. And she said, I want you to do it. And I said, why? And she says, because you are brutally honest and you are a fantastic speaker. If you can reverse engineer what you do, then I think you can show me how to be a better speaker. I said, fantastic, because I'll do anything, mate. I'll have a go at anything once, right? Just pretty much anything. And I said, right, we'll have a go. I said, if it's rubbish, don't pay me. And even to this day, I've got the, a, a video testimonial, and she said, this was great. So then I moved away from the brain training, the memory, mind mapping, and so on. Moved over towards the, um, all pretty much all towards presentation skills, mainly working with C-suite, middle to senior management, and about half of the work I do is with the boss. Amazing. So let's back up because I'm curious about the memory stuff. So what gift did you realize you had? Like, is it is it mnemonics? What is it that you're doing um, that helps you have such an exceptional memory? Well, you know, I say I've got I say I've got a gift. I'm not really quite sure, but it was mnemonics. It was all book, it was all techniques in a book. All the stuff that's been around literally for thousands of years, mind palace, putting stuff in rooms. And everybody goes, I get that. And I go, Well, that's what I did. But what I found is that I was able to apply it at a very high level. Mm. To give you an example, in 1998, I broke a Guinness record for reciting Pi, which almost everybody on, on the podcast will know from school because we all learn it, then forget it. But yes. It starts 3.14. We all learn it in maths. Yes. And, you know, and I recited it to 22,500 digits from memory in four and a half hours to break a Guinness record that stood for nearly wow. two decades. So the thing is, I know it was just purely techniques. I know that it was just a question of taking a technique, drilling down, 
honing that technique, adopted and adapted and a shed load of practice. And I got to the stage where I was one of the best that had ever been. Is that a gift? I don't know. I mean, I've got work ethic and ambition. The one thing I have is resilience. I just, I'm like a dog with a bone. I just never let go. And, you know, I my self-belief is very, very high. I believe in myself. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because like you said, you hadn't gone into formal education. Probably you would have, had you gone on, you probably would have realized that relatively quickly, right? But not until you tried it, no, no, did no. you realize, because like, I mean, in university and stuff like that, it's all rote, right? You're trying to, somebody like me, I hated memorization. I didn't, I, I didn't like it. I was like, oh my God, here we go again. I have to kind of memorize this. So well, um, maybe, maybe I would have found out later, possibly I would have done. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I do know guys who discovered memory techniques in university because they needed to learn a voluminous amount of information, but I'm I'm not so sure. I mean, on, honestly, I, I, I was sitting fire service exams. These are not, this is not difficult. It is just list after list. The 13 things on a fire extinguisher, the six things you need to remember when you go to a fire call as a senior officer, a chemical incident. And it was just list after list and I couldn't do it. So it's not like I was learning quantum physics or, you know, the relationship between characters in Shakespeare. It was literally just basic lists. And I didn't buy the book thinking this is going to be great. I'm going to be a memory guy and pass my exams. I was just sat there going, well, you know, let's just give it a go. It's six, you know, it's 10 bucks for a book. What can go wrong? And all of a sudden I found I could do this. And so, I mean, yeah, I could have been exposed to it earlier and it might have made a difference, but I don't know. Well, we can't go back there other than you you found you found it out along the way. Now let's let's talk a little bit about so um for everyone listening, uh, David teaches uh leaders how to be rock stars on stage. I'm gonna use that word. How do you capture the moment? And uh, like with everyone listening, you know that I talk about authenticity and how that impacts your capacity to connect. And when you connect, you're able to do some amazing things with people around you just by the delivery of what you're able to do. So that's what David does in his world now. So did the memory thing translate over into what you did with presentations in any way, or was it a completely different kind of uh, subset of things that you were doing? Well, there was almost no crossover. If you look at the Venn diagram, there was this tiny little thing in the middle called memory. What's interesting now is that when I do a, a day's you know, coaching with a client, memory is part of the process. I have a 22 stage process I go through and memory is one of them. But now, even though I'm a memory guy, and even though I can see the benefit of being able to memorize your speech, actually, when it comes down to it, I always say to the client, to be honest, the choice is yours. Because by the time, you know, successful speaking and being a presentation rock star is as much about skill as it is about talent or charisma or whatever you want to call it. And I take people through a process that, that improves them very significantly. But there's a lot of moving parts. They have to learn how to walk and talk, you know, whether they should stand still. They need to know how to have great eye contact, how to use cadence, how to use pauses, all the traditional basic stuff that I teach. It's basic stuff, but it works as long as they do it. And then on top of that, I said, oh, and by the way, you've got to memorize your speech. They go, really? And I go, no, not really. But if they want to, they can. Right. And I've still right. to do it. So I worked with a, a guy over here called Martin Thatcher who owns um, 
a cider company. So Thatcher Cider is a, a major brand of it in the UK. And he, I worked with him. And the one thing he said he wanted to do when I said, what do you want to achieve when you speak? And he says, well, I'm going to speak at the British Houses of Parliament to the Lords and MPs. I'm going to get the law changed in my industry. I want to be able to do it really well. I said, what's your desired outcome? He says, I want to speak without notes. Because I've been coming to these meetings with my family, you know, my dad and my granddad for years. And every time somebody stands up and does it, they do it with notes. I want to be the first to do it without notes. And so we all understand the impact of being able to speak without notes because there's maybe 5% of non-professional speakers speak without notes, only one in 20. So that immediately improves you just by being able to do it. But in all honesty, when I'm coaching people, I say, it's your choice. If you want to learn how to do it, I'll show you. And if you think that you've got too much on your plate, then that's something further down the road. So let's, let's talk about what are the, some of the core fundamental blocks that you find, um, when leaders want to communicate? Do you find that people coming to you have some basics, like some basics kind of, in that they can you know, move a room, they can speak, they can articulate, they can get a message across generally, or are they coming to you kind of, um, they're in position, but they're not able to speak very well to connect? It depends what level they are. If I get a chief exec, a managing director, the boss in front of me, they've already done it that many times that they can speak. And when they come to me, they walk through the door, they're going, I don't know what good looks like. I can kind of see it in somebody else, but I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to make myself a rock star. And they, they all phone me up and go, make me a rock star. Right? They, they don't phone up and say, can you show me how to be a little bit better? They're like, Because, you know, the ego of a chief exec is enormous. Imposter syndrome is also enormous, right? They all have a superiority complex and they're all sat there waking up at three in the morning, crying, think it's going to crash on the shores that day, right? So they're, they're all kind of crazy, chief execs, but they all have an ego. So feeding that ego is not particularly difficult. If I go one level down, even just into the senior management team, like CIO, CTO, CFO, and so on, fear. You can smell it when they walk through the door. They panic, the nerves. I had a management team last week in a in an internet provider in the UK, and, and I just said to them, there's nine people. And I said, right, by the way, we're going to start with a quick exercise. I'm going to get you up at the front. I'm going to give you a topic. You're going to speak on it for one minute. You're all going to get a different topics, so you can't prepare. And literally, they went, <gasps> and they just, honestly, they were nearly diving under the table. Seriously. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah. Because they don't do it that often. And they found themselves. What, what happens with managers is they'll kind of potter along doing a few team talks and they might do the odd little presentation here and there. Then all of a sudden they'll go up just one level and they'll go from presenting maybe once a month to once a week or mm-hmm. twice a week. And then all and it becomes really important very, very quick. So when it's chief execs, they just say, I don't know what good looks like. I don't know what, what is perfection in speaking. Tell me, show me. And I go, this is a process. And I get them up, I go through it, and I go, you're strong in this area, you're weak in this area. This is the area that we either need to go around or improve. And But then when it comes to the guys, one or two levels below, you're starting from scratch. So you're starting with um, helping them manage their fear? Is that what you, where you start with the ones? Or so what kind of things do you do with them? Like, Because, like, I mean, most people, like they say, well, you know, are petrified. Like, you speak, I speak. 
And I, I was an executive before I went on to professional speaking. So I was accustomed. But some people are like, they'll do anything but speak. Um, and even though they're at that level, they're like, okay, I can talk to my business units or I can talk to different uh, people within the organization. But just the thought of being front and center that, you know, scares a lot of people. So what kind of things do you, what do you do with them to help them with their fear? Well, there's kind of four different areas. First of all, there's carrot and stick. So I stand there and I go, right, if you learn how to present real, really today, if you engage in a full day, I can promise you're going to be better by the time you spend some time with me. Therefore, when you walk out of here, that will make you more valuable in the marketplace. And I said to them last week, I said, there's nine of you in this room. If you go one level above, maybe there's three jobs. Therefore, out of the six, out of the nine of you, six are not going to get a job if you go to the next level. You're going to you're going to have to be better than the other people in this room. Understand it's not fair. It's you know, and it's a game. You've just got to be better than play the rules better than anybody else. So that's a carrot. The stick is I turn around and go, Mark, the boss has told me that has sent you on this course because he thinks you need to speak better. I said, therefore, if you don't. Or if I go back and say that you didn't engage or whatever, and I give him feedback, et cetera, guess what? He's not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. So you've got a choice. You either engage in the day and make it work for you so that the boss is not unhappy with you. Because again, this is this is how life works. You've been given a position of extreme responsibility as a senior manager in this company. It is your duty to learn how to be uncomfortable and improve your skills. So I do all this in the same day, right? So I'll do carrot, I'll do stick. The other two side of it is, number one, um, just basic techniques. So there's loads of techniques you can use. So there's a great study came out of Harvard University. And what it said was, that people who suffer from nerves when when they're speaking, there is nothing you can do to remove those nerves. But what you can do is suppress them by putting a layer of positive self-talk over the top. Now, I'm a straightforward working class guy. I don't do much woo-woo stuff, right, at all, ever. That's not me. I understand how powerful it can be for many people, but it's not me, right? I'm I'm ultra practical. You know, I'm all about process and strategy, really almost nothing about psychology. But this was great because what it said was what you do before you speak is you stand stand there on the sidelines and you just go, I'm going to deliver a great speech today. Mm -hmm. And you've got to say it out loud, apparently. They did the test, Harvard did the test. And they said, and the audience really wants to hear what I've got to say. And I practiced and I'm going to be amazing today. And what it does is it doesn't get rid of the nerves, but it suppresses them. So there's loads of little techniques. Smile at an audience. If I smile at you, first thing you do is smile back, right? You know, I will smile back, David. I will, because I want the psychological edge. Yeah, yeah. 5,000 miles away and you still smile back, right? First time we've met. You just do it. So there's almost no audience in the world. If you smile at an audience, they'll smile back. You relax, they relax. They're in for a bit of fun. So the thing is, there's all those little techniques. But the last thing that is the most important, which I never really legislated for, is that what people have said to me after spending the day with me is that by learning what is best practice, that has taken away a really big chunk of the nerves because they just didn't know what they were doing. And I think most of us on this, I mean, and even in business school or whatever, like, okay, I'm a psychologist. So I, I mean, my craft is about really, really, 
you know, listening, learning how to communicate. Most people haven't learned that to be able to go to school doing it, right? But even in business school, are they teaching people these skills? They're not per se teaching them. So most people, I would say that they, they try their best. They go apply for a job and, you know, IT or either director or whatever, and then they gain the skills as they go. But I would say for the most part, you don't think about, you know, how do I communicate, right? When you're starting a job, when you're kind of entry level, you're just kind of trying to do the job and getting better as, as you go. But as you, like to your point, as you go up every level, there's more responsibility where you have to deliver more information. And in turn, then at that point, you're seeing probably the dull faces when people aren't getting what you're saying. So I would say that makes sense that um, some of the skills you're talking about, people, they need to learn it. They, they really do. But if you don't know any better, you'll just carry on doing what you've always done. Right, right. You no, know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a gym monkey, right? So I'm a competitive bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. And I was in the gym about three weeks ago and I saw a guy and he, he was on a, he said, I, I remember you. And I went, ah, where from? And he said, 35 years ago, you and I went on a car maintenance course at the local college for like, like night school for two weeks. And it was like, oh, I remember. Anyway, I said, how are you doing? He said, yeah, I'm all right. I'm 54. He's like 56. And I said, how, how, how are you feeling? And he said, you know what? I've got a bad back. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, just, just sit. I'm just going to say something out loud, Dennis. Because I never offer advice in the gym. Because all the people do is punch you in the face. Nobody wants advice, right? Even in the gym. Even when they're doing something dangerous, they don't want advice. But I said to him, I said, Dennis, well, while you mentioned it, you know when you're doing the pull-downs on the machine? He goes, yes. I said, what you do is you're going like this and then pushing your back. Then you're kind of shaking your back to get it down. And he went, really? And I said, yeah. I said, that's why you're hurting your back. I said, what you need to do is go back like, you know, 25 degrees. You pull it down to your sternum. You keep completely still. Only pull down the weight you can. If you do that, your back will get stronger. You'll be fine. He said, the reason you do it is because what happens is you, you know, you start pulling it down, you know, 30 years ago. Then you got a bit stronger. So you started getting a bit more. Then you couldn't get it down. So you started shaking. And then eventually that became the habit. And the bad habit became the thing you did every time. Mm. And he went, right. Yeah, I'll have a go at that. Two weeks, two weeks later, came up to me and he said, Dave, thanks very much. My back's a load better. Wow. The problem, the problem is, is that you start doing a bad habit, but you don't realize, but you just carry on doing the same thing because you don't know any better. So the guys that walk through the door with me, they can have all kinds of bad habits. It can be the way they look. I mean, I had a chief exec last week. We were doing half a day coaching. There was about six of them in the room. And his, and his eyes were like that all the time. He just couldn't keep his eyes still. I said, you realize you're doing that? And he goes, no. Oh. And, I, and this, this was interesting as well. I said, um, I said, right, we've got three major problems. You're doing that. Your start is terrible. You need to do this. You're this and this. And he said, mate, you, you need to get this stuff sorted. And he looked at me and went, I'm glad I met you. And I said, why? He said, because my, I, be, I always ask my team. <laughs> I say, I always ask my team how I'm doing. And they go, yeah, you're doing great, boss. Yeah, you're doing great. Because <laughs> they're just dead. You ask for feedback from your team and what, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, so many people share those things, uh, David, where they talk about, oh, you know, we did this, this, you know, external consultant came in and everything is good, but everybody at the senior team is like, they're falling like flies, but they're telling the CEO that everything is fantastic, right? Because people are afraid to 
you know, tell the person that say is running the organization or the senior leader what what really is wrong, right? So I think your approach, as much as it's direct, it must work for some people because you need to hear what you're not doing well, and how often might they get coached to be able to get told that? I mean, I I don't get work blind. People, I get referrals and recommendations, or people come back and use me over and again. I, I, you know, I don't get work. People know what I'm like. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm never aggressive. I am never rude. I am never obnoxious. I don't swear at my clients. I don't embarrass them. I don't make them feel small. But I am bullet straight. And every chief exec loves it. Male and female. 50% of my clients are female. They love it. Because they just don't get it anywhere else. Anywhere else at all. The share, you know, they could be running a company and have a board of directors and they'll sit in front of the board and directors. They then have to leave the room while the board of directors talks about them. I mean, you know, that that's why being a chief exec is the best and worst job in the world. Because you've just you, it's completely isolated. You really, you know, if you tell if you if you look weak if you're asking for advice from your subordinates. And 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 yet, how do you improve? And if you do, there's always a line. It does, I mean, it's the same in any relationship. You know, I have, you know, Karen, my soulmate, right? We live together. And, you know, she she's she's everything to me. But there really is very little that I, I, uh, the, the, I'll, I'll rephrase it. There really is only so far I can go with Karen before mm-hmm. she would just break down in a heap on the floor. And it's not very much. She's softer than, a, you know, a Labrador puppy dog. You know what I mean? She's yeah. just softy. Me, I'm like, I t- honestly, I love brutal honesty. I love d- I love humour that's pitch black. There's almost nothing you could say to me. Nothing you could say to me to upset me or offend me. But Karen, she's really soft. So everybody has a line over you which you can't, you won't cross. And everybody says they like honesty, but they don't. They like their version of honesty. Right, absolutely. And, you know, with the my, my new book, I do an assessment of, the qualities that it takes for a leader to be more resilient within him or herself so that he, but they're doing an assessment on themselves, but their team's doing it on them as well. And oftentimes, what do we do, right? A lot of people, they have blind spots, right? Because they don't want to kind of see it. We're very good at seeing our positives, but not so good at being vulnerable enough to see our negatives. But when the team does the assessment and then the leader does the assessment, we collate both both of those things. That's when the leader really sees wow, I'm thinking I'm really good with, say, recognition or I'm good with communication, but my team's saying, I've given myself, say, 80%, my team's saying I'm 20%. There's a disparity, obviously, that at that point is showing the leader that he or she needs to start looking at what they're not doing well. They, again, getting out of their subjective world and getting into the objective world of the people that they're leading around them and what do they need differently from them. So it's it's interesting that you say that about um, with some of these senior leaders. <laughs> who's who's telling them what the reality is about what they're not good at? Not many people, to your point, right? So let's let's talk about. I'm a leader. I come to you, and um, what are you? How are you assessing my capacity um, to see how I communicate? Um, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. So do you tailor uh, your kind of way you work one-to-one with individuals or is it like a rote, like you said, a 22-step process? What what do you do with someone? 
Well, about 80% of my work is is guys who come to me, people who come to me, male, female, uh, everybody, and they have a specific talk they want to give. Okay. So like tonight, I've been working with a guy. He's got a talk in Barcelona in two weeks, and it's 50 minutes long. And he's like, how do I make this amazing? And we go through it bit by bit. And so the, going through the 22 stages is not necessary. What I do is I sit there and I go, right, you, you've got 60 seconds to grab the retention. What's your one lightning rod theme? What is your one theme? You can only have one. I don't care if you're speaking for 50 minutes or 15 hours, you can only have one. What is your one lightning rod theme? And they go, right, okay. So what it does is it focuses their mind. And then I sit there and I go, what are the three areas that you would like to cover in your talk that feed up into that one lightning rod theme? And that's what we've done. So, you know, with this guy, the one lightning rod theme is unity. So he's got 16 different units across the world. He's bringing them together into one section. So it's about unity. That's that one lightning rod theme. The three things that go underneath it are motivation, strategy, and resilience. And so what we've done is we worked out, you know, so the first five minutes is talking about motivation, how they're doing really well, what the numbers are, and, you know, success. Strategy is about how they're going to implement bringing everybody together. And resilience is, you know, you know how it's going to work in the long term and how they're going to work in terms of leadership. And so what I do is we do that and we go through it bit by bit. But the fact is that I'm in a place now where I've been doing this for 12 years as a coach and I've never found, so far I've not, not had anybody who's been able to present as well as me or who's been able to write a script as well as me. So instantly, the moment somebody gives me a script, I go, well, actually, if we did that. So I'll give you a quick example. So tonight he said to me, I've got 74 people in the room and we've got about maybe 14 or 15 of them are leaders and what i want them to do is stand up and you know and i want them to be recognized in the room i said brilliant so i want you to stand i'm going to stand them up then i'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about what we're going to do with these guys as leadership i said that's a terrible idea and he says why i said would you want to stand up for two minutes in silence while everybody is looking at you and he went no i says then that's not what we're going to do we'll get them to stand up you say who they are and they're amazing. Everybody goes around and applause. Then they sit down. Then you do the two minutes. It went, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. That's a di- That's my 25 years, half a million people, 60 countries, drilled into me, watching other people, being a speaker, every audience you can imagine. I understand that. And he's a, he was, he's a brilliant speaker, this guy I'm working with, actually. Mm-hmm. But he wants to just be, he's, he's a nine out of 10, but he wants to be 10. He wants to be a rock star. And so that is, a, you know, that was a simple example. And it's a, so sometimes he's already got a speech like that. We go through it line by line and I change what needs to be changed. So do you find that a lot of the keynote, so it's a keynote speech at that point, or is it just like a speech to um, a company? So do you do different types? You do keynotes, you do it was um, leaders are speaking at quarterly meetings, board meetings, every type, all types of uh, speaking, David? It's only important speaking because it won't pay me fee for a small for a small talk. I mean, why would you? Right, you know, yeah. I cut, you know, I charge a fortune, so they're not going to pay that. They're not going to pay that for. You know, it has to have a level of importance. Right. Besides, besides which, you know, by the time you get a get a boss who's a chief exec, he's done a million team meetings. Right. Right. For sure. But he, he's maybe only done two board meetings, mm-hmm. and you know. He, Honestly, I could go on forever, but, you know, they are big talks. It's people who've, who've got a talk to give in Budapest, like I had earlier this year. And it's, uh, 
you know, it's Budapest. She's she was uh, she's taken over the family firm. They've got a new new product. If it doesn't work, it's going to go under. You know, she's nervous, right? She's nervous but excited. But she needs to nail that talk. She needs to nail it. And so we sit there when we're working on that's an important talk. You know, I had a guy who is in Monaco, and he we spent two hours last week because he's just. Um, he's just he wanted just a bit of an assistance on a small talk actually that he's given a monthly meeting but we've worked together before like 14 or 15 times and he just said you know I need a bit of help Dave I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with this so he shows me a few slides and then I say right but it's an important meeting because his staff have doubled in a in a year from 250 to 500 over the next year it's going to be 500 maybe a thousand inside 10 years it's entirely possible a guy's going to be a billionaire it's just it's just insane what they're doing. It's a privately held company, and he started it started it at fourteen on his bedroom table. So the thing is that the 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 you know sometimes it's a single very very important talk, or in his case, it's getting to the stage where he's got so many members of staff that spread all over the world that every time he even does something like a monthly meeting, it has a massive ripple across the company. So therefore, it's still important, just in a different way. This was such a great interview that we decided to turn it into a two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two so you don't miss out on the amazing content. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.